Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Lessons from the Cockpit Show. I am your host, Mark Hacera, and for over 24 years, I was a KC-135 pilot of the United States Air Force. On the Lessons from the Cockpit Show, we interview some of the most intriguing and fascinating pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. On the Lessons from the Cockpit Show, we explore the tactics, techniques, and procedures these aviators use during these extraordinary and extreme military, commercial, and even general aviation operations. The purpose of our show is to hear their stories, but more importantly, their lessons learned to give you, our listeners, a better understanding of how does the aviation world work and to help expand critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. Many of these stories are being told here on the Lessons from the Cockpit show for the very first time. And on our show today, you're going to hear from a three-time award winner of the Distinguished Flying Cross. This pilot was flying the A-10 Warthog and is the fifth episode of our six-part series on the Battle of Roberts Ridge. Today, our guest is Colonel Scott Campbell, call sign Soup, and he's going to tell us about his involvement in the 4th of March operations on Takargar, as well as close air support during Operation Anaconda, for which he won three Distinguished Flying Crosses in four days. His wife, Kim, was also awarded a Distinguished Flying Cross for bringing back an A-10 over Baghdad during Iraqi freedom. This power warthog couple have four DFCs amongst them. And now they both mentor new Air Force Academy cadets in Colorado Springs. Our show gets its entire support from the website Wallpilot. These are images printed on vinyl that you can peel off and stick to the walls of your home, office, or hangar. So please go to wallpilot.com and order one of these images because that's where we get our support. Let's begin our episode with Colonel Scott Suit Campbell and his exploits during Operation Anaconda. Colonel Scott Campbell, welcome to the Lessons from the Cockpit Show. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Sluggo. It's great to be with you. Your life and my life intertwined on a very fateful morning, didn't it? Sure did. We, uh, I got woken up at 1.15 in the morning. At least you got some sleep, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I graduated the Academy in 95 got A-10s out of pilot training, which was my first choice. And then uh, back when it was still an Air Force base, Pope Air Force base mm-hmm. was my first assignment. And then I went to weapons school out of there and then to Korea, um, where I was for uh, 9-11. I was at Osan. And then um, I got back to Pope right at the early 2002, right before the 74th Fighter Squadron to who I was assigned was about to deploy. And you mentioned that you'd always wanted to fly Hawks. You'd always wanted to fly the A-10. Why? I'm just curious why. I wouldn't necessarily say always. By the time I got into T-38s, I had settled on the A-10 just based on the mission set. And that's what resonated. Every time I talked to somebody had flown the A-10, that was always about, it was about the mission. Whereas other folks would talk about the airplane. That really struck a chord. And I think Probably from a flying perspective, though, the thing that really bookended it for me 
I found the supersonic ride in T-38s to be the biggest ho-hum moment of my <laughs> flying career. I was like, that's it? Yeah. I'm staring really? at your really? <laughs> Yeah. Like, you know, and just as much as my pointy nose friends, you know, like to chide hog drivers about being slow, slow is relative, right? I mean, when you're at hundred feet, 300 knots does feel kind of fast. And and I think after the, the supersonic ride, I remember my first low level ride, you know, and T-38 is fat. So, you know, doing that 400 knots at 500 feet was like, this is really cool. So all those things together. And, and I, we were fortunate at that time, we had a number of gray beards in the T-38 squadron who were finishing out just with the drawdown of fighter squadrons after desert storm. And um, I happen to have one of my instructors in the flight who'd flown F4s, A10s, and F16s. So I was able to say, if you went back right now, what would you fly? And he didn't even hesitate and said, hogs. And um, so I had a lot of data points. And, and so I was quickly, you know, probably about halfway through absolutely sold on, on that platform. And I got counseled for it by my squadron commander, who was an F16 guy. You know, I, I, good on him. Uh, he felt, the need to tell me I was going into a dying weapon system. Here we are. <laughs> and here we are 30 years later. And that thing is still, well, no, it's 50 years now, isn't it? Since it's yep. first flight. First flight 50 years ago, about last week. Now we're actually, uh, I'm going to Nellis here in, in about three weeks for the A-10 division, the hog trough reunion, 45 years of weapon school. Wow. Talk to us a little bit about that mission set of what the hog does. A lot of our listeners have obviously heard about the gun and heard about close air support, but talk about the different mission sets that the A-10 is so good at. Well, the, you know, the bread and butter, like you said, is the airplane was built single mission. I mean, for the, you know, and I know you have a lot of listeners who are big time aviation buffs and and know a lot of the history, but back in the Boyd era, and this is the, you know, you had the Eagle and the hog, right? And and we still to this day, you know, for the few C model guys who are around who, you know, the now rap most of them raptor drivers, but mm-hmm. you know, we used to jokingly call ourselves the single seat, single mission, twin engine, twin tail mafia. You know, and it's all about that singular focus on one mission, you know, for them obviously air superiority. But yeah, for us, close air support, but you know, tied right into it and closely related, of course, you have forward air control and then combat search and rescue. I was qualified and all those mission sets. And, and again, all, you know, righteous for their own reasons, as we like to say, you know, the real dichotomy too, between Sandy, where we, Sandy pilots use just what the rest of the rescue community says that others may live. And then jokingly, we say nail the Ford air control, one of our Ford air control call signs so that others may die. You know, we control, (laughs) we control violence, but I think really what it comes down to is that all set all three sets share that they're communication intensive you know it's it if you go to the core doctrinal definition of close air support the two components that we always highlight are detailed integration and close proximity to the forces on the ground in csar it's going to be your survivor survivors and then in cast and forward air control it's it's our men and women whatever unit is on the ground and so that's our blocking and tackling. It's what we do every day. We don't spend much time doing anything else. And you know, we have these and we have habitual training relationships with the joint terminal attack controllers on the ground. And I think it's unique in that manner. When I grew up, we had a very different perspective too, because my first assignment at Pope 
in addition to being a line pilot in the squadron and a forward air controller, I was also a battalion air liaison officer for the 82nd Airborne. And so as an additional duty. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I had to stay current as a jumper. So I was attached to the 14th ASOS. You know, I had my E, back then we called them ETACs, right? So my ETAC and my ROMAD. Yeah. 3rd Battalion, 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment, Lieutenant Campbell, your air liaison officer. So <laughs> you know, I had to run around with the, my ruck was always in the back of my Jeep when our brigade was on ready status with the 82nd, because there's always one of those brigades that's in the three battalions rotate on whether it's trying to recollect, but like 48 hour, 12 hour and two hour alert cycles, you know, dating myself, but I used to carry a beeper. <laughs> so <laughs> and if the army went before the air force did, you were going to be riding in a Jeep and, or, you know, or a Hummer or an APC, but I was qualified to call in cast from the ground. I was a qualified JTAC as an, as a Balo. And so I think, you know, back then we had every squadron had 12. And if you're a Ford air controller, you had to rotate through through usually you're there, you were assigned probably for about 18 months until seniority, you popped out of the top and the newest guy came in on the, on the bottom. So, but I think that really kind of builds what the community, the mentality of our community, which is just, we're all about the people on the ground. That's all we're there for. Yeah. Particularly in the A-10. Tell us a little bit about what going through weapon school is like. First of all, that's a very highly selective school to go through. So you're selected while you're at Pope. Walk us through kind of a high level look of what the A-10 Weapons School teaches. The core of it is, you know, you're really, and I have a, that's, I mean, somewhat shaped by the fact that I taught for four years there, you know, really from seeing it from that side of the, of the coin, you develop an even greater appreciation for that. It's, it's not just about becoming, we will say that, you know, it's, you're getting your PhD tactics and techniques and procedures for your specific weapon system, but you're also learning about everybody else's weapon system as, as, as you go through the program. But in the end, it's actually a leadership development program. It's, you know, the mantra is humble, approachable, incredible. And, and that's really what we're doing is we're taking, you know, the top less than 1% of instructors and making them better. And a lot of that is just teaching them to be better instructors. It's they've got the hands thing. They're they're good pilots. They wouldn't be there if they weren't, but it's really teaching them the better methodologies of instruction and how to lead um, because they're going to step back and as the chief of weapons and tactics in a squadron, which makes them the chief instructor pilot. And they're around a lot of folks who have more time experience and age on them. And they have to be able to confidently step into that environment and lead. You know, for us, it's obviously it's very heavily focused on close air support. You know, you do a couple rides, basic fighter maneuvers just to learn how to better fly the airplane because putting an airplane onto a 45 degree dive bomb wire that requires basic fighter maneuvers. You know, you have to know how to put your airplane in a specific piece of three dimensional space. And then from there, it's, going to the range and just dropping bombs and shooting the gun where we crank all of our own deliveries. So you have to learn all the, you know, going back to high school and getting a, your PhD in geometry, dusting off the Sokotoa and uh, <laughs> geometry and trig. It's a lot of math. That's one of the things that we've always been known for is we hand crank all of our deliveries as students. You go, you go out and fly them and, and you're trying different things and different deliveries. And then you practice geometry. And then really the bulk of the course is 
it's almost three of the six months is close air support and combat search and rescue. Very high intensity rides, low altitude, medium altitude, high threat, reduced threat, night. You know, we introduce other assets, you know, Apaches, get some artillery, high Mars out in the range. Uh, we bring in other services to fly with us. And so the idea is just to give the students broad exposure. We work with the other weapons school uh, divisions. And then as you get towards the tail end of WIC, and it's evolved over the years, but you know, really the last month, almost last six weeks is integration, is integrating with all the other WICs. And everybody comes to Nellis at the very end for mission employment phase, which is red flag on steroids. I mean, it's it's red flag, except everyone's a weapon school guy. Or yeah, gal. yeah. So it's Everybody's really good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's intense. I, I mean, I jokingly said at Davis Monthan last week, talking to a couple of the fighter squadrons, you know, one of them was just asking, how do you, how do you prepare for that scenario you never prepared for? Like, how, how can you be ready for that? You know, and we just talk about the value of training and training hard. And I said, I said, combat was kind of easy compared to weapons school. <laughs> I was well equipped for it because I, any one of my cast sorties at weapons school, arguably in a lot of respects was more difficult than real combat. Yeah, now they're shooting at you for real, but the operators at Nellis are way better shooters than, than anybody I've Isn't encountered. that the truth? <laughs> we've never faced an enemy like we have the, at the weapons school, have we? Right, exactly. So those old guys that are operating the SAMs are really good at what they do. Yep, we always joke, still to this day, I'm on a tech string with all the former weapons school instructors from our division. And we were just joking the other day about everybody still can, can tell you to the name. Mike 80 sits up on the Paiute Mesa SA six operator, probably best in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Knows his system better than anybody in the world. Exactly. Anybody in the world. Exactly. I will never forget the first time I went to advanced integration mission employment while we were setting up our school. First of all, it took a lot to get us there because obviously a lot of people didn't think, what do we have to have a tanker weapons school? And that's a story for another time. We had two students in our second class that were ready to SIE. I didn't sign up for this. That's what they both told us. <laughs> I didn't sign up for something this hard when we told them that, well, if you do that, you have to go to an FEB, a flight evaluation board. They went, wait, what? <laughs> what? I knew that we were teaching the right things when one of those students that wanted to SIE came to me and said, Sluggo, I sat through an entire weapons school mass brief and understood exactly why everybody was doing what they were doing. Exactly. I knew and, what and that's it, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I knew what everybody you know, know was what doing. everybody's bringing into the fight. And why they were bringing it to the fight. I'll never forget that standing in front of the the queue rooms there. And he says, Sluggo, I understand this now. I just sat through a, a brief and understood not only what everybody was doing, but why they were doing it. And I think that's one of the key aspects of the weapons school and particularly mission employment now advanced integration is you get to see how everybody operates in a crisis situation. And you know what was funny about that? You know how many of those guys that I saw like you over at the CAOC when things went to hell at Anaconda and things like that? It was like we all knew each other. Yep. <laughs> you mentioned about, you know, you're having your hog trough thing uh, reunion. And I remember seeing guys that I had known at the weapons school 
while we were standing up going, Sluggo, I am so glad you're here. We need a smart tanker guy. Soup, I'm so glad you're here. We need a smart weapons uh, officer out of the A-10s. And that was one of the things that I think, you know, like you said, build, teach, lead, all the other things that they talk about. Yeah, that, I think that it's, you're right though. It's that's the, when you have that pile of broken glass that's on fire in the middle of the room, you, you chuck a couple weapons officers in the room and, uh, and, and that's, that's the environment they thrive in. And I think, yeah. that, you know, that's always. And they and build the, the crystal palace. Yeah. You know, they take all that glass and build the crystal palace. Yep. That's what you got to do, didn't you? On the uh, 4th of March, tell our listeners about what was going on. Your 74th fighter squadron had been there for a while doing OSW, but now all of a sudden Anaconda goes to hell. We were sent over there for Southern Watch. And, you know, our primary mission in Southern Watch was to sit CSAR alert. Doctrinally speaking, we were there for CSAR alert and then as a deterrent anti-armor capability. If, you know, here we are at this point, 2002, so 11 years later, the Iraqis decided to come back across the border. You know, so that's just was my third deployment to El Jabber. I'd done two previously with the 75th and Southern Watch. Afghanistan was kind of done. <laughs> like it's, it is bizarre for me to say that. That was the attitude. You know, we had already started pivoting. You know this, you were down at the Kayak. Mm -hmm. You saw it in action, right? 1003 Victor, which was yeah. the O plan for Iraq. You know, it was already, hey, you know, pack it up. We're, Afghanistan's done and dusted. Because the reality was, you know, we got there. We had, Viper squadron out of Isleson, the Blue Foxes. We had the Strike Eagles were there. And then the uh, we had a Hornet, Marine Hornet squadron. You know, the, we got there and they were all complaining about how boring it was going to Afghanistan every day. You know, for them, three hours up, three hours back. And they're bringing all their iron home because there's nothing going on. Because after Tora Bora in December, it was quiet. I mean, you know, we first kicked the Taliban out in about 30 days. We, you know, Tora Bora was the, at the time, considered the last pocket of Al-Qaeda. Bin Laden, we think he's probably gone. We're not sure. You know, we find out later that yeah, he went due east and never <laughs> yeah. left. And, uh, never left. <laughs> but, and then when we kind of got there, we nosed around, you know, about, hey, what's going on in Afghanistan? And we got the, don't you guys worry about Afghanistan. You're not going to Afghanistan. You're not doing anything in Afghanistan. You're here to sit CSAR alert. So the Anaconda thing, everybody started getting a whiff of it about a week out. You know, I won't tell the story because El Cid is the best at telling the story. Uh, and, you know, exactly. He, he told it famously, too, by the way. <laughs> he, he doesn't get any Christmas cards from many people in the Army. El Cid. But, <laughs> <No>. uh, <laughs> but it's all truthful. I mean, it, you know, I was at Leavenworth, the good side, at <laughs> Command and Staff College, you know, years later with him. And, uh, you know, I helped Les Grau. Uh, who, as you know, is, you know, the army and I know it for a fact too. I've read almost every book he's written on Afghanistan. Um, you know, he's the burning bush, um, at the center for army lessons learned. It wasn't a Sean Naylor version. It was a PhD university, of Kansas factual history. Really good book. Yeah. Fantastic. I've spent hours and hours with less on, on that, but do you know what I mean? The, there's some truth to the how the planning developed. And, you know, the Air Force wasn't very much involved. And, you know, as the guys started talking and, you know, I think famously uh, the senior weapons officer we had hanging around the vault those days was 
the ACC commander now, Grace Kelly. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Grace was a, uh, Grace was a uh, major at the time. Yeah. You know, stuff started coming in. And, and so we just were nosing around trying to figure out what the hell the army was up to. And there wasn't a lot like we'd have any, it wasn't like order of battle. It was just like some spins were coming out. And, and so really, um, you know, the first time we really paid attention was when the first misreps started coming in. Like, and you could tell right away it was going not well. It <laughs> was going that. poorly. Yeah. Okay. And friendly fire incidents and yeah. All well, yeah, the AC 130 shooting up yeah. Zia's convoy. In fact, a good friend of mine and neighbor at the time was with that convoy. He was with tier one soft units. Yeah. Like that. I mean, it's just, you could just see the storm developing and just, you know, we saw the misrep from the Apaches just getting shot to hell, you know, and then, and quickly the assessment that the Intel was really off missed the mark completely as far as numbers, location. I mean, everything, it was just, it was, it was, it was the perfect storm. It, it was, was it was, I think they missed by a whole bunch. Yeah. The assessment was a hundred. I mean, that, that was the initial assessment. And, and I think in the end, it was determined well over a thousand. Like to say, we're, we're not talking about Taliban. These were Chechens and Uzbeks. Like this was hardcore AQ. Um, they were hardened fighters and they knew how to fight. They knew where to fight. And on top of our, I'm very critical of us, US. Uh, you know, I, I'm not pointing, it's not about services. It's about us. Mm -hmm. I think there was a certain level of arrogance going in there. We are poor studies of of history because if you go back the soviets went into that same valley with some serious armor and got their teeth kicked in in the 80s i, I think we all know that there was some and el Cid does an awesome job of really you know telling the story of of kind of what the motivations were for doing this and, and it's about budgets and relevance and it's painful to say those things to young kids like how do we find ourselves in these positions but it's the reality of it. And we have to be honest with ourselves and just say, how do we not do this next time? Yeah. Particularly when we lose seven guys in 24 hours. Exactly. You know, unnecessarily. Unnecessarily. Could have had the intel right, but didn't. And that's one of the things that I speak about. Yep. Um, we yep absolutely. Have, we could have and known. We could have known where every position was. We could have known where every logistics stronghold was there, you know, Marzak, remember Marzak, you know, yep. <laughs> all those things. We didn't, we, we blew it. Well, and, and the other part of it was, which I think was annoying, you know, I described for folks, you know, that overly familiar with even aviation, let alone close air support. But I told him, I said, have you seen, we were soldiers once and young, I go, it was broken arrow. Like, does that resonate? And I said, unfortunately, we, you know, and, and you see, we adapted and we learned because, you know, we didn't do anything, you know, for 20 years without a stack of air power sitting over the top of everything we did. You know, the reality was, what were we doing at the time? Nothing. You know, we were making a couple of milk runs in and out of the container in Southern Watch, you know, wasn't serving any real purpose. The reality of the situation was with the amount of air power we had in theater, we could have had it stacked up over that valley. You know, the minute the lead started flying, there would have been cast on station. But I think, you know, one of the things I think that Spliff shared, you know, and you know, it's like, and I know that a lot of the Strike Eagle guys, Strafen wasn't 
something they did a whole lot of, right? You know, they're an interdiction. Zero. Yeah. Zero bullets. Panzer yeah. and Spliff had shot zero bullets at ground target. Because again, look at the design of the Strike Eagle. Up can't on the yeah. gun, right? Yeah. And how many bullets, Soup, have you shot out of a cannon at a ground targets? Hundreds of thousands? At least. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 500 and, rounds, every weapon school, sorry. <laughs> and, and you know what? One of the questions we asked was, how come the hogs aren't going to this? How come the A-10s aren't coming down for this? And everybody said, no, we're not doing it. You know, well, the logistics of it was too painful or whatever. And we're all like going, one of our best close air support assets, and we're not including it in the deck of cards. And we were told, shut up, color. All right. Sure. You know, the politics have never left the airplane and it never will. Um, you know, it, it is what it is. But I think every hog driver, we all take pride in being the blue collar workers of the fighter force and that we're treated like the slow fat kid. So what? I mean, but the slow fat kid knows how to fight. And um, I think the other thing that's, that I believe is lost on folks is they have a currency or, or a recency bias, let's call it. And that's the well, you know, you had strike eagles and you had vipers and you had tomcats and hornets and buffs and B1. And it's like, yeah. And do you know how many of them before that moment had ever trained to do close air support? Um, the Marine Hornets, the Vipers, if they were Black 40 squadron, and thankfully the Blue Foxes were. Yeah. Um, they were very, there was very limited experience with the regards yeah. to close air support. And then on top of it, everybody's been doing Southern Watch for 10 years. The only thing we've, I mean, let's, okay, I'll give you allied force for the few guys who are over there for that, you know, but that wasn't close air support. That was just kill box interdiction. You know, there's no forces on the ground. They're just avoid frat or avoid collateral damage. But we were busy doing response options in Southern Watch for 10 years. And so realize, you know, cause it strikes, especially young hog drivers. When I, I say, Hey, you know, in your parlance nowadays, which I'm still fluent in, I said, we had no such thing as brief stack mark. That wasn't even in JCAT and the joint publication for close air support. I said, all the, the, these things that you guys are familiar with, they've all been born out of 20 years of combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. I said, so let alone the joint community didn't know that. There was just so many layers of complexity. AWACS, they, they weren't prepared for command and control of a cast fight. I mean, they've been doing Southern Watch too. They're really good at getting the Eagles on an intercept, you know, getting them in the right direction, you know, and they're really good at getting us to you guys on the tanker and, and getting us to where we need to go. But running that and then on top of it, well, we don't have enough coverage. So then we'll put the J stars up there and let them try their hand at command and control. It was a pickup game, understandably. But, you know, I think that a lot of people, you know, and they don't think through like what our force was trained to do and what we looked like back in 2002, really lose a sense of how challenging it was for everybody to play this pickup game. Horn Dog was my roommate. And one morning I come home and he's packing. John Horner, Chuck Horner's son is who I'm talking about. Horn Dog, he's a dog. famous A-10 guy, great guy, great guy. And I see him packing. He goes, I said, Horn Dog, where are you going? He goes, I'm going down to Afghanistan. We've got to stand up in ASOC. And I said, just you? <laughs> he goes, yeah, pretty much. And I said, uh, well, what's going on? He goes, well, this Anaconda thing is coming. and they, they need somebody down there that understands what's going on. That's how bad it was. There wasn't even 
an ASOC down there. Well, and, you know, when you read the story, you know, General Longoria, you know, who was the ASOC commander took a, you know, because he, they wouldn't let him go forward. Right. And they didn't have the, what they needed to stand up the ASOC. And, you know, he took what he could to Bagram, but that is at the time is all they had were line of sight comms. I mean, well, I mean, that was the technology we were working with, obviously, you know, that's why we'd rely in on a valley guys. with 19,000 foot mountains around it. Right. Right. I mean, that, that you're, you're training, you're transmitting out of a bowl up in Bagram. And so you, you know, you might, if you're on a good day, lucky, you might get 60 miles. And so, you know, that wasn't going to do anybody any good. I mean, you know, at least somebody was there trying to figure out what the army was doing, you know, and then playing the telephone game, like we would use you guys for where you could get something off of HF and pass it on to us when we were hooked up on the boom or just line of sight. But, you know, I mean, those were workarounds, right? That's what I always tell the young folks is that, you know, it takes generals and being, you know, resident part of the problem when I was a wing commander, but it, you know, you get a bunch of 06 and GOs who dream up these awesome ideas and and missions. And then we're going to hand, then the doorbell is going to ring. You're going to answer the door and there's going to be a flaming bag of dog feces on your front step. And then we want you to figure that out. That's what we're going to do to you. I told him, I said, we rely on captains to figure this stuff out. Isn't that crazy? We go to these young captains, uh, mid-range older captains that are all weapons school grads. And it's amazing how much they actually run the Air Force. You know, yeah, it really I mean, is. We, we would be in a lot more trouble if it wasn't, you know, I mean, but I tell them, I said, you know, just just accept that. They're, they're, don't. Don't waste your brain bites and your energy, you know, asking the question of who the hell thought this up. Just, just get on with it because it yeah. doesn't matter at that yeah. point. Yeah, I like that. Don't waste. What was it? Somebody told me, don't waste calories on that. <laughs> yeah, <know>? exactly. <laughs> so coming up on the fourth of March, you guys finally get told, El Cid and your squadron finally get told, hey, we got to send you guys forward. What happens then when you finally get the word we need a tens down here? Yeah, so we. I got pulled out of the gym. Uh, I was working out with one of my buddies and uh, one of the guys who was working the MPC came to the gym's like boss needs you in the MPC right now. Walked in. I thought I was in trouble because the group commander, deputy group commander, my squadron commander were all standing there. El Cid just turned to me and goes, Hey, you know, things I know you're aware, but things are, are getting worse and you guys are leaving. You're in pilot rest 12 hours. You your gear in the wild. You're going to Afghanistan. And, and he said, you know, K9 is going to be on your wing. You're going to take him with you. Get with Tito. Tito Hetland was our wing weapons officer, group weapons officer, and uh, was running the MPC. And so another weapons officer. And so Tito and I talked real quick because one of the things we had to do is the jets were loaded for Iraq. So we were carrying CBU, Mavericks. We had depleted uranium in the gun. Everything was about killing tanks. So Tito and I had a quick conversation, just decided to put airburst 500 pounders. We were switching from a, you know, in our parlance, I'm switching from hard targets to soft targets. So we need, tar- we need something that's going to be effective on people and thin skin vehicles. Put high explosive incendiary in the gun, take out depleted uranium, does nothing against people. You know, I need a Maverick, one IR infrared Maverick, because it's our poor man's forward looking infrared, because we don't have targeting pod. So I got his NVGs. It's an A model A10. Because we were going into a complete unknown, I asked for three pods of Willie Pete uh, white phosphorus marking rockets, a canister of Lu-19s, which is a covert 
parachute illumination flare, like the non-covert ones to put in perspective, put out 2 million candle power, candle watt power of illumination. And they're freaking incredible. Yeah. It's like the sun. uh, I'm going to drop the sun on this parachute. Yeah. Yeah. The the nice thing about the covert ones though, is it was like, instead of putting the sun out, which army isn't a big fan of at night, it puts the moon out because of course, you know, then army in their infinite wisdom decided to go in with zero alum and which made our job a lot harder on goggles. So that way we could do something with that. So we kind of just tried to take a really flexible loadout because we just didn't know what to expect. And, you know, and the real crappy part was, you know, I wasn't going to get to do any kind of studying. I mean, they were adamant about get out of the mission planning cell. Like this has all potential to go badly and and we're not going to have one of many factors be that you didn't have pilot rest. And And one of those factors was you didn't even know where you're going to land. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't even know where, frankly, I didn't know where we we're going. <laughs> like, I mean, I knew we were going to Afghanistan. Right. And it was and when we got up in the morning, I, I told K9, he was back in his hooch. And I thought there was probably a 10% chance that this was actually going to happen. I thought one, so I could sleep, but two, just as the realist, I was like, they're never going to send us. This is all, we're all going to get all hot and bothered about something that ain't going to happen. Another mission planning exercise. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was like, anyway, got up next morning and we're still on. And now, you know, now Roberts Ridge has, has happened, but a lot of folks are always amazed for me to tell them that I didn't know anything about Roberts Ridge until probably the 12th of March. I knew nothing. Really? Yeah. (laughs) That's Um, amazing because during the night, is when it's happening. Mm-hmm. So what what time frame are you in the MPC? Because Roberts hasn't probably even fallen off the helicopter yet when you guys are planning this, are you? No, we're we're at we probably came in, I want to say I came in at like eight or nine in the morning because we took off about noon. Okay. And and but there was no time. We we were in this absolute panic of you've got to get out the door and everything's happened in real time. And at this point, the, the whole thing that's driving it is our rendezvous with the tanker. We have got to pick them up off the coast of Bahrain, right? And, and yep. you know, and I don't have the ability to go faster. You know, the, the yep. throttles in the A-10 are in on or off pretty much. And, um, and so we had to make our, our rendezvous because, you know, as you know, you guys are picking us up and dragging us. And so we, no slop. So there was no Intel update, uh, really. We, my Intel update stroke rules of engagement brief was Divot Bartley comes walking in from his sortie overhead Roberts Ridge. And he doesn't even really go into it because like even they don't know what's happened. They're just on scene and shit hits the fan and they're there and, and Divot's in dropping danger close LGBs and doing strafing runs on top of the mountain. So he comes in and, and he's just giving me the here's how you get to Afghanistan. Like, like that was it. It was like, you're going to go You're getting, you know, the tanker will get you. There's this thing called the Boulevard. They're going to drop you off here. Then you're going to talk to AWACS. This is where 17 India is. Like we don't have maps. I mean, a 10 guys, I, I kind of have a problem in life when I don't have maps. Like it's my, like my whoopee. I got, I got my security <laughs> blanket, which is usually a stack of maps. That's like 10 inches thick. I get handed a bunch of maps, old Soviet maps. So they're in Russian and meter. I can at least do meters to feet 
to pull elevations off the map. I can't read it. It's in Cyrillic. And that's the best we can do. And the best that the mission planning cell could hand us as far as a ground order of battle, airspace or the battle space, not the airspace, but the battle space is five clicks by nine clicks, which is really small. And there's 37 JTACs on the ground, different JTACs in that piece of battle space. They hand me an eight and a half, 11 printout paper of a crappy one to 50 that they've produced. And it just has blue circles everywhere. And I'm like, well, what is this? That's all the reported friendly positions. <laughs> it, it was, I, I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, there's no enemy positions on it. There's just blue circles everywhere. Like there's Don't no here. <laughs> yeah. There's no like forward, like all the stuff that we have doctrinally trained for, right? Like that you have a forward trace, like a forward line of troops, forward edge of the battle area. We had trained, I mean, I've been training for years because this was new. So what we did, the good guys are on this side, the bad guys are on this side. And, you know, and then it, okay, the friendlies are moving to contact or they're in defense. But now all of a sudden, this was the first time we'd seen nonlinear battlefield, bad guys and good guys all interspersed, which of course, nowadays, that's easy. That's what we train to because we haven't seen a linear battlefield, you know, until Ukraine for a long time. So it was, yeah, it was eye-opening walking out the door of, oh my God. And thankfully it was pretty overwhelming. You know, we just got handed a three inch thick smart pack. Here's your study materials for the way up. To his credit, Face Nichols, who is the group commander, just told me in K9 right off the bat, he goes, look, dudes, don't worry about the rules of engagement with regards to hard decks and all the standard stupidity that we create for to make things harder on ourselves. He said, just go in there and employ smartly. Do what you guys do best. Go save lives. And I've got your back on any of the other nonsense. Shit hot. I can work with that. That was the best command guidance I'd ever gotten in my yeah. life at that point. And so that was reassuring walking out the door. But but as you alluded to, that was kind of one of the questions we're going through the, the I'll use air quotes, the plan, uh, which wasn't really one. I was like, so, okay, you're, we're going to get, I got the part, hang off the coast of Bahrain, tanker's going to blast straight up and get you guys, drag you, drop you off, go do your thing. And then what? And then they're like, we're working on that part. So just go do close air support. Uh, do what they need you to do. And at some point, someone will tell you where you're going to land. And at the time, you know, the options, the op, there were no options in Afghanistan because there was no runway that fighters could use because we had, you know, Bagram had 5,000 usable feet, which is at that altitude, no way we can do anything with that. The, nothing down at, you know, Gecko was a dirt strip. We weren't doing that at the time. And so it was like K2, you know, Oman, like all these bad options, the luckily a couple of combat controllers gave us, you know, they'd surveyed all these fields, you know, as soon as 9-11 kicked off. So they had kind of these, you know, kind of the unofficial, not, not for, you know, training use only, uh, here's some kind of approaches and some runway descriptions. And so we just threw them in our pocket and thankfully one of them turned out to be uh, Jacobabad you know, in Pakistan, which is where we ended up going, but we didn't even find that out until uh second to last trip to the tankers when they finally told us that, Hey, you guys are going to recover in Pakistan. And thankfully it was only an hour flight from the kill box. 
Did you uh, even know where Jacobabad was? Uh, not really. <laughs> I had coordinates. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which, which would bite, you know, one of the many things of kind of the ad hoc. I mean, we're good at it. One of the things that's uh, well above my pay grade, but I found out the next day that, you know, again, we weren't prepared for that. I mean, I knew where it was and I had a, a, a runway diagram. So I just, I knew, you know, how much concrete I had. There's no approach in there or anything like that. We had to go in blacked out, uh, which we had never done NVG landings, hadn't been certified yet. We did them <laughs> for the first time. What we also didn't know, I mean, I just didn't cross my mind. It's, I guess, maybe that US superpower rules if we just go and do what we want. But, you know, the next day on my way to the tanker, as I'm getting on the tanker, is we established the tanker track Bigfoot in Pakistan just for us because we could get it lower because we couldn't get up to 240, which is where all the tracks were, as you know. We went, you know, we just crossed the border, went over to Pakistan. I mean, we're flying out of there, or just kind of assumed I'd go where I want and not really talk to anybody. And uh, as we're rejoining with the tanker, we got intercepted by two Pakistani MiGs. Uh, apparently, we weren't supposed that. to. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think it got the tanker crew's attention, too, because <laughs> I was about a mile behind the tanker. And these guys come and they weren't very good at their job because they screwed up the intercept because we were, you know, we're slow to begin with, but we're slowing down to get on the mm-hmm. tanker. So I'm like, got the throttles way back. And these guys come screaming in behind us and you can see they've got the speed brakes out and everything. And they do a perfect intercept to a firing solution for me because they parked themselves about 6,000 feet in front of us by the time they slowed down, which <laughs> oops, you know, we got done. <laughs> it's like, that was interesting. And we thought maybe it was just a friendly, I, I don't know. And we got back to the base and we got a call from the chaos. They're like, yeah, you guys flew over one of their nuclear facilities. They're a little touchy about them. I'm like, well, it's not on my map. So there's nothing I can do about that. And they're like, well, don't do that again. I'm like, well, then tell me where it is and I will avoid it. <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was like one of the many things, you know, the pickup game. Scott, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. The tanker crew may have told us that, but I don't remember hearing that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if like, I think they might've thought the same thing we did, which it was just, I mean, you guys used to have that happen all the time in Europe, right? Where the NATO partners would come and roll up on you guys. And yeah, you uh, got extra gas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they just, you got they some practice. boom time and extra gas yeah. for us. Yeah. You, yeah. They do a practice intercept on you. And then, you know, see if you got some gas. Yeah. And yeah. I, but think that I don't remember MIG being in the refueling manual though. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it was kind of weird because they lit us up. MiG-21 doesn't have the greatest radar in the world, but yeah, they lit us up. So our raw started going off. That's how we picked them up and we turned around like, what is this? And I mean, I didn't think of it at all being a hostile. And at this point, AWACS isn't even talking to us about it because, you know, we're Judy with the tanker. So, you know, they're, they're not even paying attention to what we're doing. And, you know, the Pakistan thing was such a small, just, uh, you know, two ship A-10s and one tanker out there. They're too busy, you know, running the air war. And so I don't think they ever saw him coming either. And then, you know, I guess I think the way it came back was, you know, something got filed through the ambassador, you know, some protest or they're mad and they're very angry with the U.S. and they are threatening to kick us out yet again. And so You know how it came back to me? It came back to me, goes, the Pakistanis aren't going to let you use Bigfoot anymore. That's exactly how it came back to me. That's hilarious. And, <laughs> and I'm like going, well, what are we going to do? Okay. 
And then finally it went away. And I don't know how it went away. That anchor area had been there and the special ops guys were using it. The AC-130s and the MC-130 guys were using it. And Jeff Trapon, great friend of mine, was the AFSOC planner. And I didn't know about it. Hmm. And all of a sudden, Trapon tells me, oh, we've got this one down here in the tribal areas that's down low. You guys can use. But you can't use it while we're using it. I go, <laughs> okay, fine. And I says, why didn't you tell us about this? Well, you know, we're being sneaky because we're AFSOC. Yep. Yep. We're being sneaky because we're AFSOC. Again, as I called it, the titanium cylinders of excellence are working <laughs> for us again. And that's part uh, of like, I blame that as, you know, part of why we didn't know what was going on with Roberts Ridge was, you know, AFSOC was, I get it, love them. The, at the time, you know, and it was a big part of why we brought the 14th weapons squadron in. You know, we, we pivoted after shortly after 9-11 and moved off of, we used to do a phase at weapons school called JAT, Joint Air Attack Team, which mm-hmm. is an old Cold War A-10s working with attack helicopters, working with artillery and yeah. a very enhan- intense integration to do that. And we replaced it with our uh, special ops integration phase because, you know, because we did so much work with the special operators, we needed to get better working with AFSOC. And so we would spend we spent every class we'd go down to Hurlbert as they were standing up the 14th weapons squadron um, to do more of that because that was exactly what happened was, well, this is a soft operation. So just the gunships. And, and I had some great conversations after the fact, but that first night, no idea. Those guys are hanging out over Tucker Gar, you know, putting fires down. Nobody's told us about it. I find out a week. I mean, I find out that night that they're there, but I find out a week, a week later. Ah, yes. The 105. (laughs) I'm holding up a 105 round that I have behind my desk, folks, which we all know and love. 105 howitzer rounds are raining down on things and going through pieces of airspace. Yes. I'm going through their orbit and I, I, cause I don't know, cause they're blacked out. Um, and I'm blacked out. And later, uh, Mike Martin, a special tactics officer, I think at the time, uh, Mike was a probably a captain, a senior captain. He was on the deck of the gunship, uh, that night. And he told me later when we got together to debrief the whole thing down in at El Jabber, you know, we started putting, you know, sharing stories to figure out who is where. And he was telling me about how, and, and, you know, as soon as we started doing the timeline and the day and it was me and he said, yeah, he goes, you are coming off some run. He goes, because all of a sudden I'm standing on the deck of that gunship. Instead of looking out the side, I look forward and an A-10 full plan form is filling the windscreen. Oh. And I'm coming off a pass, a rocket pass, and I'm in a safe escape pull off. I have no idea they're there, you know, and, and that was kind of, I never, I, I didn't know that one until a week later. Once the bombs started blowing up underneath us and the, of course the Navy guys had their lights on, <laughs> the, you know, the, the red strobe went passing between my formation, me and my wingman. We were only 6,000 feet apart, co-altitude. It was either I do as a Tomcat or a Hornet predator about bounced off my canopy. That's when we kind of said, all right, this is, this is a mess when we made the conscious decision to step out of close air support and move into forward air control. So what time do you get down there in Afghanistan? What time is it when you arrive? I think sunset, of course, the worst time of day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. No. So it was about five o'clock because we took off about noon and 
and took five hours to get up there. It's just A-10's brutally slow. We'd have hit the tanker three times because we're loaded. Every hard point's got a weapon on it. Um, yeah, we show up at dusk and in that terrain, no targeting pod, just night vision goggles, no moon. Uh, it sucked. The disaster that was the infill left a lot of equipment lying all over the place when they were getting off the helicopters because they were under fire the minute they touched down. And so they were just running for cover so that a lot of gear just got strewn about the battlefield on top of the fact that, you know, you're in waist deep snow in places. And a lot of the JTACs didn't have the equipment, you know, their marking equipment. And the first, we couldn't get a, nobody was on the frequency that we were given. And so we're just rolling through frequencies out of the smart pack. We finally had a frequency, three different dudes are screaming troops in contact. One of them, was, you know, because we had to make a choice and who who we we're gonna who we we're gonna go and try to help because one at a time we're gonna have to hope that the other two are still there when we got back to them. And you know, I picked the guy. Well, one one dude was screaming for ECAS, emergency close air support. We don't use that term anymore. The term we use today is CAS without a qualified JTAC. So he was telling us that he was not qualified and, and not a qualified controller which meant he was most likely a Ford observer. So the ETAC had been either wounded or taken out. And so that's a much more dangerous scenario because these guys don't speak the, you know, the standard language where a JTAC's going to give me maybe a quick area of operations update, but then I'm going to get a nine line. My targeting information comes in the form of a nine line briefing. We have a common vernacular. We can move quickly through it. I can find targets faster. Now it's going to be really tough because this guy's screaming that he's taking fire, RPGs, heavy machine gun, 700 meters south, request bombs cleared hot. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. And, you know, <laughs> oh, you're looking down below and is all you're seeing is tracers flying everywhere, explosions. There's a little bit of AAA coming up. They're shooting at the, at the gunships, you know, at the sound. So 23 millimeter coming up here and there. I can't, that's not targetable data. As a cast pilot, I have two duties, you know, one to hit the target that the ground commander, you know, provides through the JTAC and to protect them, you know, and that's from my fires too, and not commit fratricide. So I was really worried, you know, and I could tell by the screaming that, you know, they were in trouble. And so I asked him if he could, you know, had any ability to mark the target. No, does he have an ability to mark his position? Yes. So he puts an IR strobe and Velcros it to the top of his helmet. And so now I have this little blinking light down in the valley below, pitch back black valley with tracers flying and a little light I can see on my goggles. And so at least we had a starting point. I have no coordinates. And so I just have to go off this blinking light and do my best to figure out 700 meters south to try to prevent fratricide. We, Kay and I discuss it and decide to go with Willie Pete. So white phosphorus, even worst case scenario, I were to get close to them and maybe hit them with some of it. You know, some guys are going to get burned, but ain't going to kill anybody. Probably the safest option we had. So I put two rockets down to give us a couple of units of measure. We call it a yardstick. Uh, Cause then I got a long one, a, a long one, a short one and a medium one. And so I intended that the closest one was what I thought was 700 meters. And so I said, hey, you know, now we have a white phosphorus burns really bright on goggles because it's so hot. And so I, I told the dude, you know, I was going in with rockets, clears me hot, put them down. I say, OK, from the rocket closest to you, 
where's the target? And he said, move, move 300 meters towards me. Now we're pretty uncomfortable from the standpoint of now that could be 400 meters. I, you know, I don't have a lot of trust yeah. in where, you know, but what it's telling me is he thinks it's 700. So I got to take half the distance out. And at the time we hadn't, believe it or not, we had never seek eagled where we do the um, a weapons test, right? On the Mark 82 airburst. So we had risk estimate distances for Mark 82 low drags and high drags, but we had never actually gotten the data and risk estimate distances. There's all kinds of soldier who's wearing winter clothing, prone, lying prone on the ground. You know, we're not meeting any of those objectives. And by the way, the rule of thumb at the time, most guys would go by were like, you know, I probably wouldn't drop it closer than a thousand meters. And <laughs> I, I'm being a feel we might be putting these things in at the 400, 500 range based on this. But you know, at this point, you know, we got to get in there. In hindsight, it may have been better to go in with the gun, but they were screaming for bombs. The enemy was dispersed. And so canine, you know, we, we agreed on it. You know, we get ourselves set up parallel to them and canine rips two. So two air bursts come off the jet and man, it felt like an eternity that it felt like the radio went silent and and it was probably, you know, it's, it's that car crash moment of yeah. temporal distortion. And but it was probably sunk into your chest. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, Slogo is probably two tenths of a second, but <laughs> it felt like 10 minutes. And, and, and that was it is like, oh my God, do we just kill these guys? Like our guys immediately. I mean, but you know, immediately on the radio, shack, shack, you know, direct hit, uh, we're breaking contact. And so, and that, and that was the end of that. That was our, our first attack. And actually that was the last weapons we dropped that entire night, because from there we took over the battle space and started doing forward air control. Um, because it was, as we stepped to our next JTAC, that's when all of a sudden a string of JDAMs blows up underneath my jet. Cause you know, what a 2000 pound crowd pleaser looks like when it goes <laughs> off underneath you whole string of them. Freaking huge. Yeah. And nobody, there's nobody dropping a string of like 10 of them, except one platform at that time. And that was the buff. They were up, up at, at 37,390. 390. Right? Yeah. 37,390. <laughs> and they dropped everybody. through everybody. <laughs> That, I mean, that whole thing with the Tomcat or the Hornet splitting our formation, the Predator bouncing off my canopy, all that happened within minutes. And that's when we are like, uh, we realized that our, our situational awareness was low. Like who else is in here right now? Yes. And, you know, the kill box is 30 by 30 miles, but where everybody's operating, like I said, is five by nine clicks. So you shrink that kill box down. You're, you're really only operating probably seven by seven miles is where everybody is minus the bombers. I said, we got to figure out what's going. And so we go back to, I think it was Stiletto at the time. Yeah. Stiletto was the uh, uh, joint stars. Yeah. And we said, you know, and, and again, not their fault. They're not trained for this mission set, right? They're struggling just to do the traffic cop stuff on the boulevard and get all the guys in and out of the kill box and get them to the tankers. Cause that was, you know, pickup game too. And we, we knew that, I mean, like we knew that that was going to be problematic. And so then we just, we simply asked for a roll call of sorts and just like, who's in here right now. And they started going down the list and it was like, Holy crap. 
you know, there's probably not counting the army helicopters. There are probably close to two dozen aircraft ripping around in that airspace, all on different frequencies, completely not deconflicted. You know, and some a guys seven had, by seven mile square. Yeah, we were we were had a much higher probability of having a midair than anybody getting hit by a man pad or triple A. That was we were the highest threat to one another. And like that was the moment when Ken and I were like, okay, let's bring our our Envis, our covert lights, put all our covert lights on, top and bottom, because we know everybody's on goggles at least. You know, and other guys had I mean, some of the guys had you know more situational awareness than others. You know, at the time, the Strike Eagles had the most because they had data link. They could they could see. You know, they would always tell you, "I have link SA link situational awareness." So. That was, you know, and then everybody, everybody else is just banging around on their radars. The bombers have no idea who's down below them. I mean, like when we had that conversation, you know, so the first thing we did was, you know, once we got this, I was like, you know, Kane and I had a quick like powwow on, on our Fox mic radio. And I was just like, all right, dude, like this is bad. Kill each other or we're going to have fratricide. And because we started getting the sense that we could tell there's nobody who's running, you know, there's no single source like the ASOC, right? Where you mm-hmm. check in and then they're going to distribute you to the JTAC. Stiletto's just doing what they can. Like, here's a freak. Good luck. Not even a call sign. Here's a freak. So we realized that. So K9 and I came up with a quick plan. We're both forward air controllers. And so I said, hey, let's just do you be the tactical air coordinator, airborne, TAC-A. You run check-in in absence of an ASOC. So you run check-in you deconflict. And then I will assign targets and JTACs and then I'll do terminal attack control where it makes sense. And I'll, so I'll do the FAC-A role. And so in Stiletto, God bless them. They were more than happy to give that. Because when I went over and said, I am Misty 1-1 has the battle space. We now own the battle space. No one enters into 17 India without checking in with Misty 1-2. Misty 1-2 will clear the aircraft in. We own everything. And they're like, all yours. <laughs> Happy to give it to you. <laughs> and, uh, but the first, the, you know, good on them. And, and they, that worked great. Like they, I told you, know, we said, Hey, you guys keep running the tanker plan. You know, we'll, we'll state two, four, oh, and below generally speaking, obviously the bombers are a different animal. Keep running the tankers, keep feeding the fight and we'll, we'll run the fight itself. And, you know, the first, the first, you know, first airplane that checked in canine checked in for with me was the buff. Pretty much the buff is inbound and said, hey, you know, we're, we're inbound. We've got clearance to drop from the chaos. I'm like, uh, no, your clearance <laughs> has been revoked. That's not how we do things in close air support. <laughs> this is not Southern Watch. We're not doing a response option. And it wasn't their fault. Again, you know, B-52 yeah. guys hadn't trained casts ever. Oh. And even the chaos was operating off of what they've been doing. They said, hey, we're, we've got a time sensitive target. Um, we've been cleared for the chaos. And I go, well, I have control of the airspace, so I'll be giving terminal control. I said, you know, where, where's your target? So they pass me the coordinates. I plot it. And I go, well, what about the friendlies? There are no friendly, no, no, no factor friendlies is what the chaos told us. I go, you're running right at them. <laughs> and the oh. friendlies, there were 1500 meters which is still a decent distance. But at the time, if you remember, JDAMs went one of two directions when they missed. Yes. Typically they went long. 
And yeah, ask Karzai about that, right? Yeah. And they were running directly at the friendlies, dropping a string of JDAMs from 390. And oh, by the way, not aware of all these aircraft that are stacked up, they're going to drop through their orbit. And you know, I told them, I'm like, look, I got to get you a pathway in here and we got to change your run-in heading so you're running parallel to that friendly force that's that's down there in the north end of the valley. And so we worked it out. You know, that was just, I think, representative of the problem set. The the you know, as I like to say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and <laughs> and that was it, right? Like the Air Force was doing the CAOC, the C Factor Mosley was doing everything he could, which was throw everything at what we should have done right from the start, but we're throwing everything at this battle. Mm-hmm. And 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 this is the broken glass again, right? And so reliant probably having that same thought that, well. Hopefully the captains can handle this, and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so, but yeah. And that, from that point on the rest of the night is all I did was Ford air control. So I was, you know, handing targets off, you know, and, and really what it was again, is just something that I think it's one of those things about the weapon school. Why back to your earlier point, why does everybody need to know what everybody else is doing? Because like, Hey, if the J stars guys end up stuck doing a B triple C, most people don't even know what the hell that is. But now it's never heard of Moonbeam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't even know what that role is. Now they're in it. They they're expected to match weapons to targets, you know, and, and to go thinking through, okay, the mud hens, the strike eels, they've got more gas. The vipers aren't going to have the gas. The hornets coming off the boat definitely, definitely don't, don't have don't the have gas. gas. Okay, so who am I prioritizing? What weapons do they have? What's the the proximity of the target? What type of target is it? And, you know, and, and doling those things out, that was a big takeaway that the feedback that got back to the chaos that night from the 332nd, from our group back at Jabber, from Colonel Nichols, you know, when we got a chance to get on the horn and debrief them. And I think it was also observation from the C2 agencies that, you know, but they jumped on and were like, we have to have a Ford air controller on the ATO. So the air tasking order has to identify who owns the kill box. And luckily we had the Vipers out of Eielson had at that time still had a number of Ford air controllers, uh, qualified FAC A's in their squadron. And then the Marine Hornets, of course, FAC A was a bread and butter mission yeah, of theirs too. That's so, their life. so that was a huge, I think we flexed. Yeah. We as a, as a air component figured it out and, you know, and it was a quick, easy fix really in the end. I think that you know, I think looking back, that was one of those planning things. Eventually we got there to say, you know, as you said, the titanium cylinder of excellence, like, <laughs> hey, hey, dudes, we need to know where you are and what the hell you're doing. And the good thing was, is that, again, I think that you identified rightly that you have the institutional thing, you know, years of tradition unencumbered by progress. Um, (laughs) But, but again, you go back to the, the captains of the world, they're, they're built to solve problems. And and so that was, I think it was, yeah, night two was when maybe it was night, night two or day three was when we were, uh, yeah, I would actually (laughs) Alzheimer's uh, probably was, it was actually night four was because that was a bad night weather-wise, but yeah. that's when we figured out because we were, we were the only game in town below the weather was us and the gunship. And all of a sudden our, you know, we realized, Hey, 
I got an idea. Let's work together. <laughs> and because they had so much station time yeah. in ordinance, the beauty of it. And when we were struggling finding targets, but what turned the light bulb on for me, no pun intended, was when we got down below the weather, it's a pretty eerie sight if you're not on the right team, but to see two gunships with the burn down and they're just oh. combing the hillsides. And you would watch that thing, you know, and it's about a size of a football field for people who aren't familiar. It's an IR spotlight. I'll dumb it down. You're watching that thing just roll across the hillside. And then all of a sudden it would stop. And then you knew it was showtime and you'd see 40 millimeter mitch rounds just start <laughs> wailing down on something. And we had the tactics in our manual. It's just something we hadn't had existed. Yeah. We hadn't done it. Yeah. And so I was like, hey, do you guys mind if we jump on the perch? So for listeners, if you just imagine it, the gunship's in its, its cir- you know, circular orbit. What we do is we stack about a thousand feet high and outside. And then what we can do is it's simple geometry. I fly a bigger circle. So the speed mits- mismatch, yes, we are faster than a C-130, <laughs> um, but the speed mismatch is countered by the geometry of the circle. And so I fly right on their wing And then my wingman flies 180 degrees out. And then what they do is, especially with the U-boat, or sorry, the H model at the time, the U-boat didn't have an IR pointer. That was the downside. But the H model did. They would use the burn to find targets. And then once they found something, they'd put the IR marker down on the exact desired mean point of impact. And, And so what they would, or they would mark it with 40 millimeter, which was very effective too. But as soon as we'd roll in, I'd pretty much start my roll and the C-130 pulls, continues in the turn. And I call as I cross their altitude, their guns go cold. I roll in and stray for drop a bomb, pull off and then tuck back in towards their tail, back up on the wingtip. And then I call when I'm clear and then they can open fire again. And what it allow them to do is, I mean, we even the 105 doesn't bring the, the heat like, like, a, a, like a 500 pounder. We would, they would leverage our weapons while we were, you know, before we had to go to the tanker and then when we were off on the tanker, then they would wail on stuff. It was great, great symbiotic leveraging of each other's capabilities. And um, it was awesome. I mean, it was, it really magnified what we were able to do because they found a, a target, even like, even with their capabilities, you know, they can cover so much ground and they had, they were targeting in the rat line that val that little valley south yeah. of Robert's Ridge, right? Yeah. That fed into the Coust Bowl. Yeah. And it still had a kind of a dead end to it. Like it was a clean valley. Mm-hmm. And then it it kind of forked, if you would. Like, but and then there was this big hill and it got a little more difficult getting through there. And they had caught the bad guys coming through the night of the seventh and started wailing on them with the 40 millimeter and the 105. And then they told us that they were smart, right? They, they knew the slowest gazelle thing. Like if you're in a pack, that's what the gunship's looking for. The highest density of people is their primary target. So they knew to scatter and they were scattered all over this hillside. And and we got on board the gunship and they told us that they're like, they're all over the place. I go, would it help if we rip rippled 12, 500 pounders on the side of that hill? And they're like, Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. So we had six, six each and uh, I rolled in, ripped six. My wingman rolled in, ripped six. And then we probably put 
700 rounds of 30 millimeter on top of it all and just left at a parking lot. You know, that was the, that was a capability they, they knew he had and they were having a hard time because these guys were all singletons and they're trying to pick them all off. And they're like, you guys got bombs, right? Yep. Yeah. I think that that was, again, another thing that shows like what our young meat eaters who are in the thick of it, you know, those captains and and iron majors who, who are going to make it work and who are going to figure it out no matter. Innovation in seconds. Yeah, absolutely. Innovation in seconds at 300 miles an hour. Yeah. It was crazy. (laughs) So you guys finally landed Jalalabad. But you're not on the ground for very long. No. You guys uh, get called to go back up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when we told, we were told that we were going to go to Jacobabad, you know, I had to figure out like, you know, I had to do the quick math and figure out how much gas we needed and like where, you know, I had to put it into my INS. Um, and just be like, okay, it's an hour. So we, they want us to go back in. So we're on the tanker, tanker passes the word, go back in one more time and then come out, top off and go. And they were, that night, you guys were refueling us over Afghanistan and yeah. breaking ROE for us because, you know, I could touch 240 for about 10 seconds <laughs> and, yeah. you know, the airplane was too heavy. And so you guys were tobogganing us down to get us on the boom. Mm-hmm. We topped off one more time and we just started, you know, there was nobody to talk to. Like, <laughs> you know, I think by then boss man might've been up on the net and they were like, we told him, we're like, all right, we're going to Jacoba bad. And they're like, all right, good luck. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> like, they're like, we're not, there's nobody to talk to in there. We have no procedures. They're like, we had a frequency for like the tower because the soft guys were using it. So the yeah. 53s were flying in and out of there and some of the 160 guys, the command post um, freak. And we had been assured that like, Hey, the cavalry's on their way. You know, your guys will be waiting for you. Okay. No big deal. They'll have all this worked out. And I remember we were, I was falling asleep because we didn't have any go pills because this happened so fast and nobody knew we were going to be airborne for 12 hours, which is a little tiring in a single seat fighter. And it was a long, quiet drive in the dark. And we show up and the command post, I call about 20, we were about 20 minutes out. So about, you know, 120 miles or so. And I was like, you know, Misty one, one's checking in. We're, you know, two by eight tens inbound. And they're like, who are you? And I was like, Oh shit. I was like, <laughs> we're the two a tens that are going to land there. Cause I ain't got any other options. And so they're like, okay, I, I did, that did not make me feel good. <laughs> so we had kind of air briefed how we we're going to do this. Their threat con Delta, you know, obviously that was not a good, we weren't popular in that country either. <laughs> we come in blacked out. Luckily I had an old Talon pilot in my squadron who kind of gave us the well, in the MC-130, we just come in at 20 feet on the radar altimeter, we flare. That's how you do it. I'm like, okay, well, I guess we'll try 10 feet because <laughs> it's, it's, and I mean, I know I'm like at 10 feet, I'll at least be able to see that. I should be able to see the ground and the A-10's got good landing gear. You know, if I prang it, we'll probably walk away. So we landed and then we pulled into the hammerhead, which could barely fit two A-10s because it was like a MiG-21 or Mirage base. You know, we immediately get surrounded a bunch of Humvees come through the infield and like a bunch of troopers get out and like set up a perimeter around our airplanes with their guns facing outward. I'm like, this ain't good. <laughs> and, oh and, uh, and some, some poor MH 53 uh, crew chief comes out and he gets on the headset and he, you know, we were pointy talky to try to get him plug in. 
And he's like, I worked on A10s like 15 years ago. I'll see what I can do. Oh, you know, oh God, man. Oh, dude. God bless him. Um, I'd rather be lucky than good any day of the week. Well, he, he did his best. I'm pretty sure like the nose gear pin was in the gun and, you know, there are pins everywhere. I mean, he, he did what he could. I, I think he got he didn't let a uh, perfect be the enemy of good enough. He got he got pins in, in probably the best places he could mm-hmm. uh, to make sure the jet was relatively safe. And we taxied. We couldn't even fit in the revetment because they didn't want us in sight. You know, there was all this yeah. sensitivity for us being there right off the bat. And it's like, well, we can't park anywhere because our wings don't fit in these revetments. So we just kind of nosed in the best we could. And then nobody's there. And so we walk back to the command post. I call back. I'm like, uh, you know, can I talk to the group commander? You know, it's like, I don't know, 4 a.m. And, you know, and he was faces like, great job, you know, shit hot. This, everybody's just thrilled that you guys got into the fight. You did all the right things that you brought to the fight. Good call on Facken. Um, I'm like, hey, um, sir, nobody's here. He's like, they're on a 130 uh, surgeon, yeah. our squadron commander, Ardendal. Yeah. El Cid. El Cid, they're all on that 130 coming yeah. down. They're on the main, yeah. they, they got a maintenance package. And he goes, here's the deal. You are the only two jets in town. And I was like, where's the cavalry? Like, I thought you guys told us. They're like, yeah, we got some problems with the State Department and the Pakistanis <laughs> and dip clearances and, and all this and stuff you don't care about. He goes, here's the deal. I am waiving your pilot rest. I need you back in the jet in six hours. And I was like, Oh God. And so he's like, I, and I said to him, I said, I thought you told me that we have to do the, like under the cover of darkness. He's like, no, we need you back in the fight. Like the, the, the A-10s are in the fight now. And God knows that the army's screaming for more. He's like, we need you guys to get back in there. He goes, the plan is that you've been in there. You've seen it. You understand what's going on. Everybody agrees that it makes more sense to send you two right back in versus you try to brief somebody else up. We know that you don't have any mission planning materials. You're at an austere location. Go back in and do it again. Yes, sir. And, what weapons? You know, <laughs> and you know, and, and and the good and that was the good news is like, hey, and the good news is the guys down at the Kayak have found you this thing called Bigfoot, and so and I was like, <laughs> shit hot. And uh, he's like, so this is where you're going. And he's like, here's the other good news, which we kind of joked about it. It wasn't. Yeah, it was the next day, but. Uh, the next day was when we went out and hit that track. It's middle of the day and a KC-10 is parked in the track at 10,000 feet. I'm just like, wow, gutsy call, Maverick. And uh, <laughs> I was like, I love you guys. And uh, But yeah, it was just uh, trying to help you out, Soup. <laughs> yep. No, it was awesome. They're like, we figured that you guys uh, can use all the help you and they, you know, they knew that we would always prefer a 135, but you know, beggars can't be choosers and we need help getting through that damn bubble of air behind the KC 10. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to be throwing the gear and the flaps and the everything down in the kitchen sink to slow down for us. But we woke up the next morning and the, the wing commander, the base commander there was great. Like he's like, Hey, he was in the command post at this point. He's like, I got cots in my hooch. You guys go take my hooch and go get some sleep. And then we woke up the next morning, the jets were turned around, gassed up, ready to go, and we just stepped and took off. Oh my gosh. After six six hours. You know, I, I I'm thankful at good leadership. And that's probably the understatement of the century because you know, a lot of it was the necessity of just what kept happening. That I on the sixth, 
I got another one of the pull out. I wasn't supposed to fly. I was supposed to finally get a break. And I got pulled out of the shower and my pilot rest waved again because this time they thought they had bin Laden and, you know, the proverbial white SUV, you know, I got handed a piece of paper with a red circle, go here. We just blasted to Nixon's nose. Um, and I remember uh, that day. I remember that day. And we uh, had him on, we had what we thought was him on predator. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I showed up and good on the B1 guys, man, they parked a JDAM right in the middle of the road, forced the vehicle off the road. And then, you know, the seals were there you know, to, and the other guys, I had no, I mean, but that's what we were told walking out the door and, and, you know, sure enough, we get up overhead and, you know, I got my good old A-10 driver space stabilized binoculars out because uh, it was daylight. You know, there's guys sitting on the side of the road, flex cuff with bags over their head. I'm like, Hey man, maybe, you know, we stayed all day there with them again, just doing forward air control. We ended up firing a shot and that day we were just kind of providing uh overwatch for the, the seals close escort on the helicopters back to Bagram, or at least as far as we could get them. But yeah, yeah. But finally my squadron commander after four days straight was like, okay, you're done. Like you need to stand down. And I, I wasn't arguing at that point, yeah. even as, as somebody who spangs were typically out at that stage of my career, I was smoked. Oh yeah. I've been in that situation during desert storm where we were double turning. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you're flying a 20 hour day. You're getting your eight hours of crew rest, but man, the third day, you're spent. Yeah. And you're making little small mistakes, checklist mistakes and things like that. And fortunately, we had a very astute guard flight surgeon who said, this crew needs to take a day off. And we did, you know. Well, and, and that's, you're exactly right. You need somebody who's, whose job is to keep that eye out because, you know, everybody's going to do like everything they can yeah. and use every ounce of energy. Nobody's going to say no to the mission, but yeah, you've got to have that person yeah. who makes the call for you. Well, and as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm doing a six to seven part series on Anaconda and this particular battle and everything. And I'm calling it leave no one behind. And when it comes to battles like this, we will not leave anybody behind. We will do everything we have to, to include breaking a few rules to do that. I don't normally send a KC 10 to 10,000 feet to refuel. All right. (laughs) particularly because the KC-10 has the boom and the drogue and it can go AC doocy. Mm-hmm. But in that case, I wanted you guys to have all the gas you could possibly have. It was, it was quite a sight. And, we, and it's a freaking big airplane. It is. Yeah. 10,000 yeah. feet. Okay? Yeah, it's, it's a everybody sight down there on the grounds looking up at this thing. They're like, going, what the heck is this thing doing here? <laughs> we would always, you know, we always jokingly referred it to as Battlestar Galactica. Cause it's just, oh, I know. I especially know. at night when all their lights are on and everything, yeah. and you get that vector from the AWACS and it's like 40 miles out. There it is. And it is. it's, it's like a battleship sitting out there. And it was, uh, I mean, it was awesome. Cause you know, 10,000 feet, I got, I got thrust. It was great. Cause we were like where Bigfoot was located, that area ain't, you know, like it's not like when you cross the border into Pakistan, you're, mm-hmm. you know, feet dry, you're safe. Mm-hmm. Right. Like oh. arguably it just as dangerous. You know, the 53 guys used to tell us that they were more nervous crossing on that side. Yeah. They, they actually felt a little better once they got into Afghanistan. Yeah. So I went to the Missile and Space Intelligence Center and I said, we're going to send tankers right here. All right. I want you to do an analysis of it. The whole area came back yellow. Not just <laughs> yeah. the not just the 
the uh, airspace, but like everything around it. There's oh, mountains yeah. around it. And it's over the, for all the listeners, it was over the Pakistan tribal areas. And we didn't have a lot of friends down there. In order for Soup to do his job, we did it and we pulled it off and nothing happened to us except for the two MiG 21s yeah. that came up to say hi, you know, <laughs> and off we went because that first week, everything went to hell. Everything was going wrong. Everything that could go wrong went wrong with bombs going in the wrong place. And as you described the chaos, and it's fascinating too, because at the end of Spliff's episode, I put three of the audios from his cockpit and mm. Junior and Meat's cockpit. And you can hear the chaos going on with Gabe Brown hollering, we need this, abort, abort, abort. When they first come in, these guys haven't shot the gun. Junior was the only guy who'd shot the gun at a target. And the reason was he happened to come from your airplane, the yep. A-10. Well, and I mean, it's it's uncomfortable. We used to watch their film for us to, you know, to see that you're because of the accounting of the up can't for the cannon, they're gone. You know, you've got to put your total velocity vector short of the target. <laughs> and you're screaming I mean, at the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's screaming at the ground. It's not comfortable. I mean, it's we used not. to we do Ford air control for those guys at Nellis, like when they would be in their close air support phase, we'd fact for them and watching them go in to do strafe. It's just, it's unnerving for me to watch. And <laughs> you, as far as I know, are the only person I know of who's got three DFCs in four days. I have I, been told so by uh, the DFC society. So Chuck Sweeney, who's the CEO, good friend of ours, incredible pilot. But uh, yeah, that's uh, told me that. So uh, I believe that to be a valid statement, according to a source that probably knows these things. Those things were the farthest thing from your minds when you were doing all this, though, wasn't it? <laughs> we're yeah. just helping my guys. Yeah. You don't have time to think. You know, it's the conversation I had with some young pilots the other day is like uh, the company I'm with, you know, I've got a number of Navy SEALs I work with. And, you know, it's attributed, the quote's attributed to a Navy SEAL, but, you know, it's, I'm going to paraphrase, but it's, it says that you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back to the level of your training. And that's why we train so hard. And, you know, I told them, you know, cause like, you know, people are like, just like, what was going through your mind? Like nothing, you're executing. Like you're, you're not stepping away, just going, wow, this is pretty crazy. It's like, mm -hmm. there's no time for that. And, you know, and your mind's just running a million miles an hour, but you just, you just go into what you do and there'll be time later to reflect on it. But yeah, I, I think that that's just the, you're constantly grinding and, you know, it was really cool a few weeks later, because by this point we're at Bagram. I managed uh, a call came through from our deputy group commander back at Pope, Muck Brown. You know, he wanted to talk to me, and again, I'm like, "Am I in trouble?" And uh, he was like, "That's always our first thought when the leadership wants to talk to us." Exactly, exactly. It's usually, not tell me I did something right. I know. And, I, uh, I have stood before my ops group <laughs> commander, and the first question I asked him is, "I am I in trouble?" Yep. <laughs> he actually was called to tell me. He said, "Hey, he goes. Uh, I just want to let you know, let Kane I know." He goes, "That strike the night of the fourth. He said um, that first unit that." So White Lightning Bravo is the call signer. Yeah. And he goes, that was 10th Mountain. He goes, 187 was the unit, first of the 87th. And he said, uh, he goes, that was my kid in that company. And he goes, no. Yeah. He goes, you guys saved his life. That was pretty cool. I, I always tell like, you know, and nowadays I, you know, live right outside the North Gate of the Academy and 
Um, we sponsor cadets and I'm a senior mentor up at the academy. And, you know, I tell them, you know, when we have these conversations back to your original question about, about flying. And I told them, I said, look, I go choose the mission. I said, you know, that's, I said that, that, that's the thing that's been validated by my career because like having those moments, like even if you're not having that direct connection, it's just like, you know, when they call that they're breaking contact or like those radio calls are, are, you can't replace them, you know? And, and, and it's, it's at every layer, right? Like, I mean, like the day I had to thank the, you know, it was that night of the seventh when whoever was sitting in and with somewhere I had the call sign written down, but whoever was sitting in Bigfoot that night heard my voice in the radio and knew I had pressed my gas and supporting because we didn't want to get out of there until we finished what we were doing with this pretty large enemy force, the gunships were asking for help with. As soon as I checked in, they could tell right away. And they're like, we're coming to you now. Immediately snapped, you know, asked AWACS, where are they? Snapped direct to us and uh, and came and got us. And I don't, I, I don't know I would have made it home that night if they hadn't done that. And I didn't, I didn't know if I said thanks enough time when I was on the mic uh, to, to tell them that I, I appreciated that their recognition of the state I was in without me saying anything. That's a cool team to be on. And, you know, I've talked to Rick Tolini and Rick Tolini actually talked about this in a podcast once. He called it intuitive expertise, intuitive mm-hmm. expertise. He says, you've done it so many times, but you haven't done it like this. But yet this looks like this. This looks like this. And you bring all of those parts together and it works. Okay, yep. That intuitive expertise that you talk about where you're just executing and you're doing stuff that you've never done before but it's working. Yep. And it must've put a lump in your throat when you heard from that group commander, you saved my son's life. When you yeah, said those words cool. here, it put a lump in my throat, you know, <laughs> because you really never know how many people's lives you affected when you're doing the things that you're doing. How yeah, many guys I mean, are alive today right now because of the things that you and I have done? Yeah. It's a cool thing. I mean, you know, you just love with, Fort Carson here and, and, and the, the number of, of, of retired army guys up where we live too is, you know, I've got an A-10 silhouette on the back of my truck. And when they spot it, they will go out of the way to come over and, and, say and it's, it's neat too. Like, you know, like sometimes like, nah, it wasn't me, but I think I know who that might've been. And I recently connected with, you know, and, and he was in all of the Roberts Ridge, but Monty Heath, uh, who's a seal, retired seal, um, and, and he filled in all the blanks on, on March 6th for me. Cause I, in the end, I never knew what really happened. Um, I mean, I knew it wasn't bin Laden. I mean, that much I knew, but yeah. I didn't know what else went on is there's a lot of chaos going on on the ground. And, uh, and we connected, just had a one hour zoom call one day and kind of shared perspectives and yeah. he filled in all these great blanks. And so I think that's kind of the fun thing too, to where you, yeah. you know, I've gotten connected with other guys like you need to talk to this guy. Cause I think you guys were overhead that day and it's, it makes it, it makes it so cool. I mean, yeah, 20 years later. Yeah. Yep. 20 years later. Amazing. All right. I got to ask you one personal question. How yeah. did you and Kim meet? Tell us about your wife just real quick and how you guys met as both a 10 pilots. It's kind of a, a little bit of a running joke, if you would, in some respects and that we met at the Academy um, she's two years younger than me. So immediately everybody's like, Oh, no, <laughs> we didn't date at the Academy. So we yeah. met 
and she was in my squadron, my cadet squadron. So we knew each other, but we didn't date as cadets or anything. It just happened, I think, by chance that like we reconnected. I was in pilot training at the time. You know, it was just a reaching out for advice or something. And then we started corresponding. And then right when she graduated, uh, we from the academy, we started a kind of the long distance relationship thing because she went to, she's a Marshall scholar, much more academically accredited than me, but uh, she went to England for two years to grad school while I was at uh, Pope going through the A10B course in that Pope. And then uh, she went to pilot training after that. And at the time I was in weapons school when she was at pilot training. And so yeah, we graduated on the, so we missed each other's graduation. My weapon school graduation is the same night as her UPT graduation. And we had just gotten married before she started UPT. Like one of the things that we were talking about this last night with our, one of our cadets and we thought she was like, I don't know that I want to go into the A-10 community because you know, you're a known entity, you know, you're a weapons officer, I'm going to be brand new. And at the time there were a lot of A-10 and F-16 squadrons that were Eilson, Spangdalem, Osan, I mean, lots of them. And so there were a lot of options. It's just like, she had gone into the T-38 track. She's like, maybe it'd be better if I went F-16s and then we just try to make it work. And so the drop comes down, there's only one Viper and then there's an A-10. She's picking right behind a guy who is a strike eagle, Wizzo, uh-huh. who's now gone back to pilot training. So yeah. he wanted a strike eagle, of course, but they didn't have one in the drop. Yeah. So he's like, well, I'm taking the Viper you know, I want yeah. something with a radar. I was at her drop night though. So there I am. I got a permission slip hall pass to leave weapon school to go to her yeah. drop night. And I have no idea this is about to happen. And she goes up on stage, bang, A-10 goes up on the screen and the entire room turns around and looks at me. <laughs> it's like, well, this is going to be interesting. Yeah. What did you have to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I told the flight commander, I'm like, you know, a little bit of warning would have been nice. So that I was like prepared not to have a reaction. And I'm not really good at not reacting. And it, but it, you know what? It worked out, right? I mean, we, yeah. I went to Osan while she was at the going through the B course. And then yeah. I got back to Pope and we were both, you know, she was in the 75th, I was in the 74th. And, yeah. you know, the first couple of years we were deployed back to a back lot. all the time because yeah. our sister squadrons, we always, yeah followed each other. And then once we got to an Ellis and I was teaching and she was at the 422 minus me deploying for a year in Afghanistan as a group commander. And she did a six month deployment to Kabul. We were stationed together the rest of our career. It's pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. Back to my earlier comment, good leadership. That's what it was all about. I met face Nichols when he was the commander of the buzzards. Hmm. I was working at the wingtip at Aviano during Allied Force. Oh, okay. That's when I met Face Nichols. El Cid was a T-37 instructor at Vance when I was going through. So I knew him <laughs> too. You know, wow. I, I talked earlier about these small circles of people, yeah. you know, and it's crazy how all of these people will show up for an event like this. You did have good leadership when you're at Jabber. Both of those guys are fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. leaders. Yeah, so, we had, I was very fortunate. We had, I mean, just, rock star rock stars for leaders and so that makes yeah. you know makes all the difference as you know you know yeah. it's people who who do the do what they say right yeah. say what they do and yeah. 
it's yeah, they were, they were awesome that, that, and that was crucial at that point in time, we could have easily been wringing our hands and, and trying to come up with the hundred percent solution. And instead, and, 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 you know, and then I also credit my squadron commander, like mm-hmm. surgeon was that dude's a war magnet. Like he, he attracts combat and he mm-hmm. had flown in desert storm as a Lieutenant. He flew in allied force. And then here he is stumbles into combat again. And, you know, that's an, it was a huge lesson for me because that's easily the moment, you know, as a squadron commander to go, I'm going to lead from the front and I'm taking this first sortie in. And when he turned to me and said, you're leading it, I kind of, he probably read the perplexed look on my face. (laughs) He's like, look, the weapons officer for the squadron at the time, because our, our weapons officer didn't deploy because his wife was, was pregnant. It's like, look, you're the weapons officer. That's what we train you guys to do is this. You are taking the first two ship in. That that really stuck with me on, on what, you know, and he would later kind of explain. He's like, look, my job is to organize all this. You know, we got to get maintenance and equipment and weapons and like into an austere location. Like there's a there's a lot that my level of leadership is required, not your tactical expertise. And I I that was a big lesson for me for the rest of my career, resisting that. I always have to be the first one out the door. So let's end with you telling us about your coaching. Yeah. um, I work now as the executive director of of operations for Victory Strategies. So small company, we do leadership development through executive coaching, experiential team building, keynote speaking. And we've got a pretty, it's, it's a really neat group of folks. Um, it was started by a, a Navy C, former Navy SEAL. And we have a combination of Navy SEALs, uh, fighter pilots, and then some Fortune 500 executives and entrepreneurs. So for me, it's really fun just yeah. sharing leadership, like yeah. especially in, with private sector executives, giving them some of your military experiences as a leader. But it's also fun. Like I learn a lot. Like you know, I'm in any variety of, of different sectors, uh, manufacturing, healthcare, risk and ins- reinsurance. And so I get to learn a lot. Our team is, is awesome because, you know, when I encounter something like a, you know, trying to draw a parallel of my experience to a, a problem a, a senior executives having, you know, I turn into one of my teammates who was the senior vice president at General Motors for global safety <laughs> and, and, and be like, hey, Jeff, like, can you give me some explanation on what this what this is about or what what would be a parallel for me? And he understands my world. Yeah. And so when we're doing some experiential team building, you say SEALs are good at that stuff. But, oh, you know, hey, Lauren, three-time Olympian and captain of the women's field hockey team for the U.S. Olympics. You know, you could probably help these folks out yeah. with building a high performing team. So yeah. it's really awesome. It, it, I think it's, you know, when, when we separate from the military, what you miss is that team and that camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things I love about being back with a elite team, you know, I mean, one each general Baba Rand on our team, pretty impressive to have a four star <laughs> yeah. global strike yeah. command yeah. commander. Yeah. Yeah. He's I mean, got a few stories. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like having guys and gals like that on our team. And so it's, it's That's really awesome. neat. And uh, that was for me when I saw the makeup of the team, I was like, Oh, this is something I would love to do. And so it's, it's, it's good. It's fun. Hey, soup. We've been going at this for two hours. Thank <laughs> you so much for being on lessons from the cockpit today. Great, great stories. And again, 
isn't it interesting how your life and my life intertwined and here it is 20 years later and we're finally seeing each, each other retina to retina <laughs> yeah it was great to be on i appreciate the invite and yeah it was pretty cool to close some of those loop where we were and what we were doing and and how what we were doing was impacting each other and, and uh, yeah. it's pretty it's so cool to come back like you said even at the 20 year mark and, and be able to make those connections and fill in some of those blanks and understand how that got done and um, so yeah i appreciate the the conversation it's been fun to catch up thanks the a10 warthog is the one airplane ground soldiers love to hear above their head the engine sound is very distinct but so is the sound of that gun and in the warthog community you'll always hear this term Brrr, the sound of the gun going off over people's heads there's no telling how many countless lives the a10 warthog has saved with pilots like Scott Campbell flying it. Monetary support for the Lessons from the Cockpit show comes from the website Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. And folks, these things are incredible. You can even read the stenciling on the AIM-9 missiles that are on the F-15s. We have World War II airplanes such as the ME-109, Focke-Wulf-190, the B5N2K, all the way up to modern aircraft like the F-16, F-15E, and even the Warthog now. We are working on helicopters, the Apache, the S3C King, and even MH-47E Chinooks as part of our series of Anaconda because I interview two pilots who flew that aircraft. Please go to wallpilot.com. There's 113 ready to print images, very detailed, that you can order right now for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. All of our episodes can be found at my website, markhasera.com, to include all previous episodes. Thanks for being with us today on the Lessons from the Cockpit Show, and we will talk to you once again next week as we continue our series on the Battle of Roberts Ridge on the 4th of March, 2002.